The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord shall stand forever. Let the church of Jesus Christ say, Amen. Uh, when I was a student in college, uh, in my sophomore year, I became the chairperson of a committee of our student government called the 737 Cafe Community. I don't know why we called it that. But, but our job as a committee was to book bands and singers to come and play shows on campus in one of our local venues. In my tenure on this committee, we planned many small coffee house shows featuring local musicians, a couple larger shows in our larger auditorium, and even two huge national tour blowout concerts in our field house. Our team would start by brainstorming all of the bands that we wanted to book. Some everybody knew, others no one but that band's groupies knew, but we listed everyone on our whiteboard, to be fair. Then we looked at our rather meager budget to see what we could spend that year on bringing bands in. And then came the field work. To book a singer or a band, you first have to figure out who their management team is and then send them an email or give them a call asking about the singer's availability, their booking fees, and their technical requirements they need if they were going to play a show at your concert or at your college. Then you report back to the team. We add it to the whiteboard, noting all the costs for all the bands that we wanted to bring in that year. Some had outrageous price tags approaching $100,000 and including technical requirements and needs that ran over a dozen pages with the very specific diagrams even showing where the water bottles needed to be placed on the table in the green room before a concert. Other bands, especially local bands, would tell us that they'd come and play for free if we just took them out to Chili's afterwards and covered their gas. Our plan was that we would book one big show a year that we could charge enough on tickets so that we could allow us to, sell, to book several smaller shows that we knew wouldn't attract as many people. Once we decided our plan and our calendar, and once we signed off all the contracts with the bands, it was time for us to market the shows across the campus. And usually the day of the show, or even the day before the show, one of us would drive over to the airport in a college transport van and pick up the band members who were flying in for that concert. We'd stand outside baggage claim with a sign listing the names of the band members until they would arrive and greet us and we'd wait for their guitars to come through the carousel and then we'd be off to, con to the campus for the show. And I tell you all of this because one of the things that we got really good at was spotting band members before they spotted us. Rock stars had a look. Sexy, messy haircut. Skinny jeans. An abundance of denim. Fancy leather boots. And a general sort of king or queen of the world walk. Every now and then, though, these rock stars would trick you. Amid the disembarking passengers, there'd be no sexy, messy haircuts, no skinny jeans, no denim jackets, no leather boots, just this nondescript person in like a cardigan with patches on the elbows wearing Converse sneakers, and they'd show up and tell us who they are, and we'd just be flabbergasted because we thought we were waiting for a real celebrity, you know, with like a celebrity look. But most of the time, it was the skinny jeans and the leather boots and the haircuts that set the rock star apart from other folks 
leaving the Air Force. It was celebrity. The result of touring the country and listening to thousands of fans singing the songs you wrote and then buying tickets to your shows and staying around after to get your autograph. This level of celebrity does a number, I imagine, on your ego. You could see these guys, and it was mostly men who owned this look coming a mile away. They didn't need to find us for us to find them. We get it. We know it. You're famous. Celebrity. Fame. And all of this to say, happy Palm Sunday to you, church. At the most fundamental level, Palm Sunday routinely marks the beginning of the final stretch of the Lenten season. For us, Lent is an annual journey to Easter, and today we enter into the final stretch of that path, one that will lead us to the triumphant celebration of resurrection. But we aren't there yet. For baseball fans, Palm Sunday is the changeover from the top to the bottom of the ninth inning with the home team stepping to the plate for one more chance to put the game away. For college basketball fans, it marks the final minute of play in a tied game with both teams in bonus plus. It's going to be a nail-biter all the way to the end. For soccer fans, today is the beginning of Lent's stoppage time. Ninety minutes have already been played over the past six weeks, and now it's down to the final bitter moments of Lent. The final whistle's going to blow at the end of this week, but we're not there yet, and anything could happen. In Scripture, the story of Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, as we sometimes call it, marks the beginning of Jesus' passion. Today is the first event in a series of events that will lead Jesus to the cross and to his death and burial. Each of our four Gospels in the New Testament tackles the events of Palm Sunday slightly differently, but all of them agree that at some point Jesus enters Jerusalem in a procession of sorts, and after he does so, things go downhill swiftly. In fact, what many commentators and scholars seem to agree on is that the events of Palm Sunday, as Matthew has put them to us, both the entrance to Jerusalem and the cleansing of the temple, this is what is going to get Jesus killed come Friday. For us here at First Pres this year, Palm Sunday marks the final installment in our sermon series, Tested, in which we've been considering how Jesus was tested and tempted throughout his ministry, how Jesus was persuaded by numerous circumstances to back away from the will of God, to reject the path God laid for him, and we have rejoiced to find each week that Jesus rejected those temptations. We've seen him tested by the incredulous disbelief of a religious leader. We've seen him tested by his own prejudice against a Samaritan woman. He's been tested by a corrupted theology that associated physical maladies to human sin. He's been tested by despair at the sudden death of a good friend. And today we enter the final installment of this series as we look at the entrance of Jesus to Jerusalem as yet another temptation, another test of his resolve and commitment to follow the will of God. Today is a test of fame, you could say. It's a test of celebrity. A test of will Jesus do what the crowds are begging him to do. In today's gospel reading, Jesus enters Jerusalem in a strange parade of sorts, and when he does, there are these people. The crowds, Matthew calls them. 
who are going directly ahead of him and directly behind him. And they're shouting out things like, Jesus is the heir to the great King David. And that Jesus is the, quote, blessed one sent from God. They're, they're literally shouting a word that we don't translate in English, a word, Hosanna. But in Aramaic, it literally means, save us now. This is not normal. This is not usual. This is not typical or part of any religious tradition or festival. I mean, anybody within earshot hearing this is turning their heads. Jesus, the, the one who literally in the Gospel of Matthew has walked hundreds of miles on foot, is now bizarrely riding into Jerusalem for the last two miles of his entrance. Tradition said that all pilgrims going to Jerusalem for Passover were required to walk into the city, but here Jesus is purposefully riding in, sticking out, his body elevated above the walking pilgrims, riding a donkey while Galilean crowds shout out royal exclamations and cry out for salvation from this person on the donkey. The whole city is in an uproar when Jesus gets to the gates, the text says. Literally, in Greek, it says that the whole city was shaken by these events. And the residents of Jerusalem, the, the Judean pilgrims who didn't know Jesus yet, began to ask about him. Who is this, the text says. And the Galilean crowds replied, this is Jesus. He's the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And with that loud and dramatic introduction, Jesus takes the stage for his final week. Now, church, if Jesus is trying to enter Jerusalem quietly, he is doing a terrible job. He's not, though. He wants this parade to mean something. Jesus is even in on the planning of the parade. He's even prearranged with the owners of this donkey, even coming up with a convenient little password, if anyone asks, the Lord needs it, so that his disciples could go and retrieve the donkey from him. The, the text doesn't say that Jesus instructed the crowds to shout out Hosanna or call him the son of David or the blessed one, but church, this parade is a planned event. It is not a spontaneous activity. And if it is planned, if it was prearranged by Jesus, then that raises some very interesting questions for us. For example, why? Why not just slip in quietly so as not to attract the ire or attention of others? Why this sort of entrance? It also raises the question, to what end? For what purpose will this result? What is Jesus trying to do by drawing so much attention to himself at a time when Jerusalem is literally bursting its seams with pilgrims? What is he hoping to accomplish with this sort of entrance? Jesus seems to be presenting himself as something out of the ordinary, and he's organized some sort of like street theater performance art to make a statement of sorts. And really, church, I think it's vital that we see that in the reading today. I mean, we need to see that Jesus is doing these things on purpose and not merely by accident. Sometimes I think we can read the Palm Story story and, and, or the Palm Sunday story and we can assume that all of this was just a spontaneous outburst of praise and joy because look, kids, look, it's Jesus. And then go get the palm branches, cut them down quick. 
We might even think, oh, look, Jesus is riding a donkey. Look how humble he is. I mean, he's not riding a horse or a chariot. He's riding a donkey. And maybe the cloaks and the cut branches were just a sign of piety and faithfulness, and everything is just okay. But church, none of that is in the text as we have it today. Rather, what we read is that Jesus prearranged to borrow the donkey for this purpose. It was a planned activity. We also read that when you ride a donkey into Jerusalem from the eastern gate, this is everything that the Old Testament prophets said that the true king would do when he returns. And they were waiting even for God's glory to enter Jerusalem from the east, even from the Mount of Olives, which is exactly where Jesus enters Jerusalem from. I mean, even the staging of crowds behind him and before him announcing his arrival seems intentional and purposeful. Church, we've got to admit, Jesus knows what he's doing here, and what he's doing is provocative and dramatic. We might wonder why, but we cannot deny that he is doing something purposefully, and he's getting lots of attention for it. We read the city, the entrance of Jesus shakes the city, and everyone begins to wonder about who this guy is. This is not a nondescript cardigan and converse wearing lead singer quietly making their way to a pickup at the airport entrance. I mean, this is rock star Jesus wearing the skinny jeans and slick haircut and really amping up the who's that guy vibe on his way into Jerusalem. He wants to attract the attention of the city. Why? Things get even more outrageous when Jesus enters the city because he goes straight to the temple with the Galilean crowds bustling around him. And there, Jesus single-handedly drives out all the people exchanging temple currency for Roman currency. He drives out all of the people selling sacrificial animals to pilgrims who couldn't bring their own. And as he's doing it, he is shouting out verses from the prophet Isaiah and Jeremiah while a group of children are in the corner singing songs of salvation to him. Jesus, the prophet from Galilee, enters Jerusalem boldly, conscientiously, provocatively even. And the first thing he does, he goes right to the heart of the city, right to its most important institution. And with everybody watching, he stages a one-man performance in which he restores the temple courts to a place of prayer and healing and restoration. The drama of Palm Sunday is what leads the senior pastors and theologians of Jerusalem to accuse Jesus of blasphemy and sedition against Rome. Palm Sunday is what attracts the attention of the people who will conspire to murder Jesus for fear of what he's going to do next. But since we're ending a preaching series here about how Jesus was tested in his ministry, we should wonder, how did these events test Jesus? I mean, where do we see Jesus tempted to go away from the will of God? I see Jesus being tested as soon as he hops on the donkey and starts riding into the city. Jesus is ushered into the city on the praises of what we assume to be Galilean crowds. His people, the people who came with him all the way from the northern county, the groupies, the true fans, the season ticket holders. They've seen what Jesus can do in person. They want to tell everybody that Jesus is not only a prophet, but he might actually be the heir of David and the true king of Israel. 
Jesus enters Jerusalem with the songs of his people going before him and after him. He enters Jerusalem on the hopes that he will be the Messiah they have waited for. He can hear it in their voices. He can see it in their eyes as they pass Roman legion members standing there to keep an eye on this parade. They have a job description in mind for what Messiah will accomplish, and it will start in their minds with eradicating the iron boot of Rome. I mean, they're all coming to Jerusalem for the Passover festival, a time when Jews remembered the time when they were slaves to a global superpower and God showed up and sent Moses to set them free from slavery and lead them to freedom. And the crowds going with Jesus are just itching for Jesus to start a ten plagues redo against Rome. Jesus, riding into the city, purposefully embracing the image of messianic hope, Jesus knows that is not how his story is going to go. In fact, I think Jesus had a really good idea about how his week was going to end. I mean, throughout the Gospels, Jesus is trying to explain to his disciples that when he does get to Jerusalem, he's going to be killed. I think Jesus staged the procession in this way in order to announce to everybody who had eyes to see that the triumphant Messiah, the rock star Messiah, the war leader Messiah had in fact arrived, but that the story would not turn out the way they planned. Because church, you cannot separate the Palm Sunday Jesus from the Maundy Thursday Jesus, or the Good Friday Jesus, or the Holy Saturday Jesus. The triumphant king entering at the gates is also the suffering servant who mounts the cross on Friday. Jesus gets everyone's attention so that everyone would follow the events of this week to trace the rise and fall of this Messiah in order to see that God's rescue operation would not arrive without humility, suffering, and death. But even though Jesus knew how his story would end, and maybe even was confident in that, I've got to wonder that Jesus the human if the songs of the crowds and the adulation of his followers called to him and invited him to find another way besides the way of the cross. We'll return to Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane later this week where we'll hear him cry out to God, Father, take this cup from me. If there's another way, let's do that. I wonder if Jesus was tempted to get caught up in the thrill of the spotlight. I mean, he's the Messiah, right? He could have gone into the city, and instead of going to the temple, he could have gone straight to the Roman garrison and demand that the Romans leave town by sundown or else. And if not, they'll have him to deal with. I mean, why not? I mean, maybe the way to glory should come through an act of outright rebellion. I mean, maybe the way to God's kingdom should come by forcing it to arrive right now, on his terms. But Jesus does none of these things. And I think the doing of none of them is the point. The crowds going with Jesus saw the entrance from the east. They saw the donkey, the cloaks, the branches on the street. They heard the songs sung. And they're, and they're able to imagine that what was going on here was something God was orchestrating. They blessed God for it. They were overcome by the power and emotion of Jesus' entrance. But when this same Jesus is accused of blasphemy, 
and was said to be in league with the devil, when this Jesus threatened the Roman establishment by calling himself king, the people's shouts of praise and adoration turned to shouts of condemnation and accusation. In the sight of this one that they hailed as king on Sunday, hanging naked on a cross on Friday, caused them to look away in shame. And church, we stand with this fickle crowd, part of this crowd here on the first day of the week, remembering that Jesus is king, remember that, remembering that God did anoint him Messiah, remembering that in Jesus God's kingdom was being realized and that his teaching shapes the way we live. We like Palm Sunday Jesus. But by the end of this week, when we meet Maundy Thursday Jesus and see him stooping to wash the feet of the people who hurt him the most, when we hear Maundy Thursday Jesus say to us that we should do the same thing to others, well, that's hard. When Palm Sunday Jesus turns into Good Friday Jesus, who is mocked and abused and shamed and executed out near the city dump, a failed Messiah, a failed king, well, we might assume the role of the crowd who just couldn't bear to be associated with that level of humility and weakness. We may even find that we raise our voices not to say Hosanna, but rather crucify. Because church, if you're like me, we are far more content with Jesus when he goes along with what we already think than when he pushes us out of our comfort zones into the lives of the poor, the confused, the oppressed, and the lonely. And we just want Jesus to bless every part of us, to tell us there's nothing wrong with us, nothing wrong with our churches, nothing wrong with our politics, nothing wrong with how we spend our money. We want a Jesus that makes our lives easier, not a Jesus that calls us to empty ourselves and take upon ourselves the form of servants. We are the crowd divided by two loyalties, and this Holy Week we're invited to examine whom we prefer, Palm Sunday Jesus or Good Friday Jesus, but, but we are also invited to see that the crowds were in fact correct. Jesus is Lord and King but one who followed a different way, a road that led to a cross, to death, even to death on a cross. And because he walked that road, because Jesus was able to suppress the calls of the crowd to find an easier way, a painless way, Jesus exposes to us the depths of the love of God that finds us in our weakness and depravity and sets us free to find new life in him. I say to you again, church, happy Palm Sunday. I invite you on the journey this week as we make our way to hold through Holy Week to the joys of Easter Sunday. I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening this week. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. You can learn more about us at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 10.30 a.m. to worship with us. We would love to welcome you and your family to worship. Have a great week.